You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We are in our second week uh, in the book of Acts. I mentioned we're in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, And I know you woke up this morning thinking what I'm thinking. Nothing says Valentine's Day like a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, and speaking in tongues like Pentecost. As we said last week, Acts, the book of Acts, uh, is about the Spirit of God empowering Jesus' church to advance God's mission. And where Acts 1 set all of that up and is characterized by preparation and waiting, the calling that is put upon the apostles, in Acts chapter 2 now it starts to take off like a shot. And so we'll get right into it this morning. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Verse 14, but Peter Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, that is, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Brothers, I, say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set on one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, as you were poured out upon the apostles and these early followers on the day of Pentecost. We ask now that you would pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds would be open to receive all that leads to life and to holiness. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen. Uh, there is, we didn't even get to the last few verses, we'll actually do that on Ash Wednesday, but there is a lot of incredible substance to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to do our best to cover these first 41 verses by looking at this in three parts. The Spirit, a sermon, and salvation. The Spirit, a sermon, and salvation. So first, the Spirit. The Spirit. Uh, in our particular theological circles, uh, we are prone to pay woefully little attention to the Holy Spirit. And I don't think I understand maybe all of, of why, but I think I understand something of why that is. I have different convictions. I have disagreements with how Pentecostal and charismatic Christians understand some of Scripture. I've experienced, as perhaps have some of you, misunderstandings and abuses of spiritual gifts. Uh, and I, perhaps like some of you, have seen spiritual experience elevated far above truth. There are plenty of reasons why when we hear about the Holy Spirit and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we might be wary or skeptical. But it's tragic that in response, we're prone to neglect or to minimize the Holy Spirit, to not talk about the Holy Spirit, to leave the Holy Spirit as like something that the more charismatic Pentecostal branches or tribes of Christians do. It's something that, that's for them, but not for us. And meanwhile, our functional trinity becomes God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible. Now, I love the Bible. I hope you do as well. We're meant to treasure the very word of God that has been revealed to us. But we actually wouldn't have the Bible, nor the spiritual ears to really hear Scripture, apart from the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of our triune God. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father and the Son, just as worthy of our worship, on whom you and I are just as dependent for our salvation and for our sanctification. If we make it through this life with our faith intact, it will be only because the Spirit has guided and sustained us every day, every step of the way. John Stott once said it this way, There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. He goes on to say, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And for this reason, we should esteem the day of Pentecost on par with Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. Because just as the incarnation is essential for our salvation, just as Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish salvation, if Jesus does not then ascend to the Father and send his spirit, we are lost. Without Pentecost, there is no salvation and there is no church. Now when the spirit came, Pentecost was already a long-celebrated festival in the history of Israel. It was already a a thing that people knew about. Pentecost, which comes from the Greek word for 50 or 50th, was celebrated 50 days after Passover, and it marked the beginning of the harvest season. It's also, if you read through the Old Testament, it's also known as the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. One of these three yearly feasts where Jewish men were required to make a pilgrimage from wherever they lived in the region to Jerusalem. That's actually why here in Acts chapter 2, there are Jews from every nation, all the places where Jews have been scattered around the known world at that time. That's why Jews from every nation are gathered together in Jerusalem already when the Spirit comes. And by the first century, Pentecost also came to be celebrated as the anniversary of the giving of God's law. So if you've been tracking with us in our reading through the Bible in a year plan, we've just this week been in Exodus, finished Exodus. God gave his law through Moses on Mount Sinai, and he did that 50 days after the Exodus. The Exodus, of course, began with the Passover, when God passed over the firstborn of the Israelites, sparing them, judging the Egyptians, and then setting the Israelites free. So it's important to grasp that background of Pentecost. Because when the Spirit comes here in Acts chapter 2, we see some incredible fulfillment around these themes. Pentecost celebrated the first fruits of harvest. And so on this Pentecost, 3,000 souls believe the gospel, are baptized, and enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus had told his apostles that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. He had told his apostles that They should lift their eyes because the fields were white for harvest. So how fitting that the first fruits of Jesus' harvest, 3,000 souls, are added when the Spirit comes on Pentecost. And Pentecost also celebrated the giving of the law, God's revelation of himself, his guidance for his people. As his people quickly found out, as we well know, as necessary and helpful as God's law is, it can't give life. It can't give life. We can't keep it perfectly. We can never perform well enough. We can never make ourselves righteous enough to be worthy of God's favor, of God's salvation. But Jesus can. 
Jesus did. And accomplishing our salvation, he now sends the Spirit to apply all of the benefits of his work to us, to seal us, to keep us. The law can't give life, but the Spirit can. And so this day, when Jews celebrated the giving of the law, is now the day when the church proclaims what the law could not do, God did. That in Christ and through the Spirit, there is a new covenant. God will no longer write his law on tablets of stone. He will write them on the very hearts of his people. So do you see the continuity? See the continuity here? Scripture, church, Scripture is one story. It is one unified whole. And Acts 2 is just the next incredible chapter of God's redemptive history. Even the parts of Pentecost that trip more people up, the the supernatural signs, have amazing significance and continuity with all that's gone before. As we read, there's a mighty rushing wind. The Spirit is often compared to a wind or to breath. Sometimes it's actually the same word in the original languages. And centuries earlier, when the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of a valley of dry bones, what was it that gave life to those bones? It was the breath of God. It was the breath of God. And God, through Ezekiel in that passage, says, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. There are also here in Acts 2, tongues as of fire. Fire often indicates the presence of God like with Moses at the burning bush, or when the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai smoked as if it was on fire. When the pillar of fire guided the Israelites through the wilderness or when Elijah went toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal. At crucial moments of calling or direction or power, God appears in fire. And Acts 2 is nothing if not a moment of calling and direction and power from God. And then the third sign, speaking in tongues. We'll have to save a full treatment of speaking in tongues for another day. But for today, notice that these ordinary, uneducated men from Galilee began declaring the mighty works of God and that Jews from all over the known world heard it and comprehended it in their own languages. Why? Why was that a sign at Pentecost? Well, first and foremost, because they needed to hear and believe. Jesus came to save sinners, and he came to save people from every tongue and tribe and nation. They needed to hear it. They needed to understand it. But even more, God here is reversing the curse of Babel. See, at Babel, humanity arrogantly tried to climb our way to heaven. At Pentecost, God the Spirit humbly descends to us. At Babel, humanity's languages were confused and the people were scattered. But now, through the work of the Spirit, the unintelligible will become intelligible. And as the, scattered, as the nations have been scattered through the curse of Babel, now the nations will be gathered together in Christ. All this to say, if you value the work of Christ, if you hang your life upon God's saving work from creation to the cross to the consummation of all things, And if you long for the day, as we read in the book of Revelation, where people from every tongue and tribe and nation will gather around God's throne and worship together for all eternity, then you will treasure God the Holy Spirit. You won't won't let the Holy Spirit just be a thing that certain tribes within the greater Christian family think about and pursue. You will treasure God the Holy Spirit. 
And we haven't even talked about gifts of the Spirit, which are also important. But here's the thing. Before we seek to understand the gifts, plural, of the Spirit, let's make sure we understand what Peter writes here in verse 38. The gift of the Spirit himself. The Spirit's presence with us, the, his indwelling of us, his application of Christ's salvation to us. This is the gift, singular, of the Spirit. Second, second, let's look at this sermon in Acts. The event of Pentecost happens, and then the bulk of Acts 2, actually, verses 14 through 36, is a sermon from the Apostle Peter. As we make our way through this book over the coming weeks and months, you'll notice about a third of this book is sermons and speeches. Luke records a lot of sermons, a lot of speeches in this book. And this one, the first one, on the same day the Spirit comes, establishes a model for early apostolic preaching, what sometimes is referred to as the kerygma. What did the early church, what did the early apostles, the first apostles, preach about? What were their sermons like? So let's pause and ask this morning, what is it that differentiates a faithful sermon from an unfaithful one? What differentiates a sermon from a TED Talk? Or what differentiates a sermon from just a good motivational speech or a moral charge given to people? As we trace out the New Testament, we could say a lot about that. A scholar and a historian named F.F. F. Bruce, I really appreciate how he has summed up that there are four elements to early apostolic preaching. And we see all four of them actually in Peter's sermon. But the four are these. An announcement that the age of fulfillment has arrived. An account of the ministry, the death, and the triumph of Jesus. Citation of Scripture, which for the apostles would have been the Old Testament, showing how they are fulfilled in Jesus. And then lastly, a call to repentance. So let's look at how we see those just briefly play out in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. First, an announcement that the age of fulfillment has arrived. Peter, as we read, quotes the prophet Joel. Joel foretold that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all people. And the last days begin when Jesus comes proclaiming, inaugurating the kingdom of God. The last days will be consummated when Jesus comes again in glory. And the final saving act that Jesus does then before he comes again is what happens on Pentecost, is when he sends the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's arrival and these visible, audible, supernatural signs of the Spirit's arrival tell us that these are indeed the last days, that this age of fulfillment has now arrived. And so men and women, and young and old, and social elites and social outcasts, the Spirit will not discriminate. The Spirit will be poured out on all who call upon the name of the Lord. As Joel prophesied, it's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Second element of apostolic preaching, an account of the ministry and the death and the triumph of Jesus. And we could just say it simply like this. A faithful sermon is about Jesus. A faithful sermon is about Jesus. In fact, if it's not about the person and work of Jesus, it's not a sermon at all. For all of our use of the word gospel in our broader Christian evangelical circles and subculture, we're actually inclined to forget its meaning. The gospel at its core is news, good news. It's a message to be believed in. And it's a message specifically about 
who Jesus is and what he has done and how he is reconciling the world to himself. And so Peter proclaims here, verse 22, Jesus was attested by God in his miracles and ministry. He goes on to say Jesus was delivered up to death. And it was absolutely God's plan that Jesus would die, but it was also absolutely human wickedness. So we see there a real glimpse together in one verse, God's sovereignty and human responsibility stand together. It's not one or the other. They don't negate each other. It's completely the sovereign plan of God, and it's completely the responsibility of wicked humanity that Jesus had to die. Then, verse 24, Jesus was raised up. Death could not hold him. And then Jesus, verse 33, was exalted to the right hand of the Father and has now poured out the Spirit. And so Peter then concludes, verse 36, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is of equal authority with the Father, and he is the anointed deliverer. And he says, let all of you know for certain that that's the case. If you are going to reject this message, if you're going to reject this news of the gospel, let it never be because you didn't know. Let it never be because you didn't know. And Peter's saying here, after this day, now you do know. Now you know. That, friends, Acts 2, is how you preach a Jesus-centered sermon. That's how you do it. And the day that I or anyone else from this pulpit moves on to something else, the day that we stop telling you about the person and the work of Christ, that is the day you should stop listening to us. Find someone who will tell you of those things. As Eugene Peterson said, rescue me from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ, who is wise in the ways of the world, but ignores the movement of the Spirit. The day we move on to anything else, the day we just assume the person and work of Christ and start talking about other things, stop listening to us and start listening to somebody who will tell you about those things. The third element of early apostolic preaching, the citation of Scripture, and specifically here the Old Testament. Peter already has quoted Joel chapter 2. We saw that. As he continues, he quotes two Psalms. Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Psalm 16 is about David, is about God not allowing the Holy One to see corruption. And Peter goes on to explain, King David could not possibly have written that about himself. Because as everyone knows, David's dead, decomposing body is right over there, on the south side of Jerusalem, where they are when he gives this sermon. Psalm 110, then, is about God granting for someone to sit at his right hand. But who could that be? Who could that someone be? Who besides God the Father would David call Lord? Jesus himself poses that question to the Jewish leaders during his earthly ministry. And Peter says, well, it wasn't David who ascended to the right hand of the Father. So here's the thing. Some Psalms only make sense in light of Christ. Some, some Old Testament text, some Old Testament scripture only makes sense in light of Jesus. And we still, today, see in a mirror dimly. We still long for the days when our eyes are clear enough to see. But how much clearer has it already become in Christ? And the Spirit here opened the eyes of Peter and the apostles so that they and all of us who come after them might begin to perceive the truth and the beauty of these ancient words finding their yes and amen in Jesus. The final element of this sermon 
a call to repentance. So this is not just a, a story. It's our sin. We are as responsible as anyone for Jesus being delivered up to death. And so when you and I hear the gospel, we're not meant to, to say, wow, cool story. Wow, great, great information. Now we're meant, when we hear the gospel, we're meant to repent. We're meant to turn away from our rebellion. We're meant to turn toward God. To as one author put it, we're meant to do a spiritual about face. And this response of repentance and faith is not a one-time thing. It's an everyday lifestyle for the people of God. The gospel initially and then over and over again demands a response. Jesus' saving work calls for a response from every person who hears it. So in our day, in our own lives, when some faithful witness tells you, as Peter told this crowd, that the age of fulfillment is here, tells you how God's plan from before the foundation of the world has found its fulfillment in Jesus, tells you of the person and work of Christ, our response should always echo the response of this crowd. What shall we do? Tell us, please, how now shall we live? We should be hungry to know how we should respond faithfully to the good news of the gospel. We shouldn't wait for someone who's in that position of authority to come after us and tell us how to live. We should be hungry and go find out what faithful lives look like in response to this. Faithful sermons are never just informational. They're transformational. They form us into people who through continual repentance and faith become increasingly like Christ. And God help us, some of us who have been Christians the longest, who know the most, who study the most, who become the most equipped to teach and lead and disciple other people, can be the most prone to miss this to live in our heads without near enough attention to our hearts and to our hands. Repentance and faith are the basic building blocks of the Christian life, of everyday discipleship. We're meant to see our sin. We're meant to own our sin before others, when we sin against them, absolutely, but more importantly, before God. And then we're meant to believe the gospel, that it is for this sin, that it is for you, that it is for me that Jesus Christ came into the world. It's for you he died. It's for you he conquered death. And all of this he did for you while you were yet sinners. Not when you had cleaned your life up enough, not when you had gotten rid of that stuff from your life, but while we were yet sinners. You can understand the references and the original languages and the literary historical context. You can know what the word kerygma means and the four components of it. You can be given tremendous opportunities to lead and to serve other people, and you will remain among the most immature, juvenile Christians if you neglect a constant, continual practice of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith until Jesus comes again. So men and women, respond to the gospel. Don't just listen to sermons. Don't just consume content. It's a fatal habit to seek information without also seeking transformation. When you hear the good news of the gospel, respond. Specifically, respond by repenting and believing. The last thing we'll look at today is salvation. We talked about the spirit. We've looked at this sermon. Third and finally is salvation. And in that, I mean the effect of the Spirit's arrival through Peter's sermon 
is that salvation comes to 3,000 souls. 3,000 men and women, 3,000 image bearers of God believe and are baptized and enter into the kingdom of God. Over the years, some have referred to this moment as the birthday of the church. And I think that fits. The, the only danger in that, I think, is to, that we would miss the continuity of all that's, that's gone before. But it is certainly fair to say, and it's right to celebrate, that in a new way, the Holy Spirit is filling and empowering the remnant of God's people to be Jesus' church. To be those who now, in our times and places, in our day, carry forward the mission of God. Peter here calls the hearers not only to repentance, but to baptism. And specifically, he says, baptism in Jesus' name, which would mean derived from the very authority of Jesus himself, acknowledging who Jesus is, acknowledging what Jesus has done. Verses 38 and 39 here are really an entire sermon or series of sermons in themselves, but just two brief comments on that today. First, it's upon our response of repentance and baptism that God imparts two gifts, forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. So in our circles, and rightfully so, we're often quick to point out that baptism by itself, baptism apart from any faith, doesn't save anyone. That's true. But what I also would say we should emphasize just as loudly, we cannot sever the artery that connects these two things. Repentance and faith and baptism go together. They always go together. It's completely foreign to the New Testament that there would be such a thing as an unbaptized follower of Christ. If you grew up in a church that undervalued baptism, or we've met some people, thankfully, over the years in our church family that grew up in different sects that said baptism is actually legalistic and we shouldn't practice that anymore. If you grew up in an environment like that, I just want to tell you clearly this morning, that didn't come from the Bible. And that didn't come from the early church. That didn't come from the history of the church. So if that's you, if you struggle with baptism and, and you haven't ever been baptized, I would love to talk with you and I'd love to do that soon. Like Peter does here, the elders of this church will always be those who implore you to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Second thing, last thing I want to say about this today. Baptism has in view more than just the individual being baptized. Faithful Christians will debate and disagree. I think we do that fairly well most of the time in this church uh, about whether to baptize children of parents who believe or whether not to do that. What's not debatable is that as Western, generally, Christians, and American Christians specifically, we are way too prone to hyper-individualize the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is absolutely a personal thing. It's something, as Peter says here, something every one of us should do. We don't send representatives from our family or different churches to get baptized for us. It's something every one of us should do. But as we do, as Peter says here, the promise of salvation is made visible. The promise of salvation is enacted not only for your benefit, but for the benefit of your children, the generations that come after you. And for those who are at present far off, but who perhaps even in seeing the visible gospel of your baptism or someone else's baptism, God would call to himself. It has you absolutely in mind, but baptism always has others in view when someone is baptized. 
It's why we should not get baptized privately. It's why we should not get baptized as free agents somewhere. We should get baptized into a church family, a church body. We should do it in the gathered worship of the church as much as possible to celebrate that together. It has not only you in view, it has more than you in view. On Pentecost, 3,000 souls receive Peter's words, are baptized, and they enter into God's salvation. And chapter 2 here ends with this little glimpse of what it looks like for them to live together as the church in Jerusalem. We're going to look at those few verses together on Wednesday night, on Ash Wednesday, uh, as we kick off our season of Lent. So we'd love for you to be back in here in this room with us on fi- at 5.30 on Wednesday. But today, let me close by revisiting that quote from John Stott that I shared with you a little while ago. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ's likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And because today and every time we hear the gospel, we seek not simply information, but transformation. In light of Acts 2, let's examine ourselves. Is there evidence of the Spirit in your life? Is there a commitment in your heart to His truth? Is there fellowship with other Christians in the unity of the Spirit? God knows it's easy to divide over everything right now. Are you instead pursuing and walking in the unity of the Spirit with brothers and sisters in Christ? Is your life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul details in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you living as a witness to Jesus by the Holy Spirit's power? Where you see any of these things in your life, rejoice. Rejoice. Pause, even today, even right now, to thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not spiritual gifts, per se, the gift of God the Spirit himself. Without Pentecost, without the Spirit, none of those things that I just listed off there are possible. But wherever you don't see these things in your life, take heart. Take heart. The very Spirit who empowers these things is the Spirit who convicts us of sin who shows us where we fall short, and who, thanks be to God, leads us right back into the arms of Christ. Because God in Christ has poured out his spirit on all sons and daughters. Because all of a Christian's life is one of repentance and faith. May you not just be informed by these words this morning. May you be transformed. May today be one more day where you repent and believe the gospel. May today be one more day where you know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who was crucified. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your spirit, which you have poured out upon us, we ask that you would now give us strength to live out the message we have heard today. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.